Well, welcome to everybody here this morning. Uh, it's great to see you, especially some visitors. Great to have you with us. Welcome to you this morning. Uh, the bulletin's on your, on your chair, and it's got the uh, notes, the outline of the uh, sermon that we're looking at this morning. Claire's family and my family are very, very different. Uh, they're, they're both great. They're just different. And that's true of probably most families when you get a set of in-laws together. The in-laws quite different sometimes, and slightly different cultures, and, and the way of operating and families that function differently. When I was a kid, we were never allowed to put our elbows on the table. We had to sit elbows off the table. My dad would flick my elbow if I put my elbow on the table. That's my parents there. They don't always dress in suits like that, but they are quite formal. It's quite a formal upbringing, and very, very different to Claire's parents. Claire's parents, a little picture of them here. This is uh, kind of more like Claire's parents, Claire's mum with her Batman mask, and Eric, uh, I don't know what he's doing there. So you can imagine when our families met for the first time, I was a little bit concerned. There was a clash of cultures going to take place, and I had to warn Claire's dad, please don't put your elbows on the table, please don't put chips in your mouth like that. That's not how my parents roll, it's not going to go well. So it was quite a stressful morning. Uh, it's quite, quite a stressful time for me, the first time uh, our parents met. Every family, every household has a different way of doing things, don't they? Every kind of family has a different culture, a different household culture. And when you go to a different household, one of the, the, uh, the rightful thing, the respectful thing, is that you submit to the, the culture of that household. If you turn up at a family who they take their shoes off, then that's something you do, isn't it? When you go to that house, you make sure you've got socks that don't have holes in, so when you take your shoes off, it's not too embarrassing, or that your feet don't smell, etc., Now, the Bible calls the church the the family of God or the household of God, which is a a phrase that's used quite a bit in the Bible, God's household. The church isn't a building. This is just a building we meet in. It isn't a church. We are the church where God's people gather together. Wherever that is, that is the church functioning. It's God's family, God's household. And and just like human families, can can we get rid of that picture? It's a bit disturbing. Just, Just like human families or households, have certain ways of doing things, so does God's family, the church. God has given us a whole lot of instructions, particularly in the New Testament, for how local churches should be structured and organized and how they should function and what they are to do. And the book of 1 Timothy, although it's partly about uh, personal instructions for how Timothy should conduct himself as a church leader, probably about half of the book is also instructions for how local churches should function. The book of 1 Timothy, I guess, is largely about Paul telling Timothy how to lead and run the churches that he's been asked to look after, principally in Ephesus. And in 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 15, you can bring it back up now, Philip, thank you. We get this verse here, and, and, and this is a little bit further on from what we're reading today, but he's referring back to what we're reading today amongst other parts of it. And Paul says this, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. So this letter from Paul to Timothy is full of instructions for how people should conduct themselves when they gather together as church, as we're doing this morning. Last week, Stuart looked at the uh, first of these instructions, and I I gather he was glad that he was doing last week and not today. Um, I've got no one to blame. I set the program, so it's it's, it's my fault. Here I am doing this one. But uh, 
Last week, Stuart introduced this little section for us, which begins with the first of these instructions, which was the instructions for churches to gather together to pray, principally for those in authority in our nations. And then Paul goes off on a little bit of a tangent, talking about Jesus, and then he comes back to his instructions for how we should uh, conduct ourselves in God's household as we get to verse 8 of today. And we're going to look at those a little bit more in detail this morning. Now, a warning. Some of the content of today's passage uh, may contain things that might seem a little bit strange to 21st century ears in the UK culture. It might, be, it might jar with you a little bit, it might seem a little bit odd, it might seem a little bit different, particularly perhaps if you're a visitor or you don't normally come to this church. But bear with me and hopefully what we'll see as we go through these verses this morning is what uh, this is all about, how it applies to us and the relevance uh, of it for today. So we're going to read from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 uh, verses 8 to 15. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 8 to 15. It's important not to see passages like this in isolation. They're, one of the dangers of, of, of sort of doing bits, and, uh, sort of bits by bit is that we, we forget that this relates to last week and the next week and so on. This is a whole kind of sweep of what Paul's saying. So with that in mind, uh, let's read uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. Remember, he's, he's talking about when the church gathers. This is the instructions for, the, for God's household. He's talked about gathering together to pray, and now he, he goes off on a bit of a tangent, and then in verse 8 he comes back to this theme of gathering together um, and principally to pray. So in verse 8 he says this, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Wow. That's a strange passage, isn't it, to our 21st century years? And given the fact that there's about half of the folks missing this morning that would normally be here, I'm perhaps making some assumptions about people not wanting to uh, hear what this passage has to say. Um, but it's, it's full of things that are a little bit different, perhaps, and, and don't sit comfortably with us in our 21st century culture. Well, what on earth is all this about? What is this passage about? What is it saying to us? Is, is this still for us today? And what does that look like? What does that mean for us? Well, Paul gives instructions on this passage on how men and women are to behave when they come to church gatherings, official church meetings like this. Especially, uh, he, he talks firstly to men, and then he, and then he looks at the women. He's already talked in verse 1 of this chapter about gathering together to pray, especially for those in authority. That's something that we really need to do, isn't it, at the moment in our nation, but it's something we should always be doing. And then he goes off on a bit of a tangent about the, the gospel and about Jesus, and then he returns to this issue of prayer. And he says in verse 8, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Now men, and I speak as a man, men tend towards one of two extremes. Either we're passive and we fail to step up to our responsibilities, whether that's in the home, uh, as fathers, if we're fathers, or in our marriages, if we're married, or in the church, we're passive. That's a default. Most men find themselves tempted to be drawn towards, to be passive and not step up to their responsibilities. Or 
The opposite of that is that we become all macho and aggressive and competitive and try and outdo one another. It's back to the school playground. I'm bigger than you are and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes we even manage to do both at the same time, be both passive and aggressive. So Paul is firstly tackling here the issue of being passive and failing to step up, to man up and uh, take the lead in church. In, In this case, by praying in church gatherings. He says, I want men everywhere to pray. I want men everywhere to pray. Secondly, he's tackling the issue of men who, due to their ego and their competitiveness and their hunger sometimes for power and position, they argue, they fall out with each other, and they're angry and they're engaging in disputes, Paul says. And he doesn't want us as men to do either of these two extremes. He doesn't want us to be passive and avoid our responsibilities, and he doesn't want us to compete with each other either. Instead, we're to be active as men in the life of the local church, particularly in a public setting, in a a public way, particularly in public prayer. And, And so as men, that means firstly coming to church. It means making church a priority. It means leading in our families, if we have families, and saying, we're going to be at church today, we're going to go to church, and I'm going to be there, and I'm going to be part of it. And when we have times of prayer, particularly in open services, particularly in a church prayer meeting, perhaps, that we step up, and we step out, we man up, and we take our role as men seriously, and we lead in prayer. It's not saying the ladies don't pray, we're going to touch on that, they do. But as men particularly, we have a responsibility to lead, to man up, to take our responsibility seriously. And when we come... It means that we participate by leading others in prayer and we get involved and we step up. So men, do you come to the prayer meeting? Here's a real bold challenge this morning. No one's going to particularly enjoy this morning, I don't think. Men, do you, do you lead? Are you passive? Do you come to the prayer meeting? If you're not leading, if you're not coming to the prayer meeting, you should be here. This is what men do. This is what godly men do. They come, they lead, they pray. And then instead of competing with each other and falling out with each other, we're meant to work together. We're not trying to compete with each other. We're working together for the glory of Jesus. Not for my glory or your glory. Not for my way, your way. Coming together, working together, not disputing, not angering. Coming not for our glory, our ego, our pride, but for the glory of Jesus. And as we do so, Paul's point about holy hands is also important. It's important that we're living holy lives. Paul talks about lifting up holy hands in prayer. I don't think particularly that the, the, the posture is what Paul's getting at, but what's important is the condition of our hearts. The state of our hands, or the way the Bible describes our hands, is often synonymous with what's, on, what's going on in our hearts. That's what he means. And so uh, Paul is saying that when we come and participate in church life, particularly when we pray, we need to have clean hearts. God wants men to be active in church meetings, especially in prayer, but it's important that when we do that kind of thing, that we're not pretending to be one thing on the outside, whilst inside our lives are full of sin, where we've got unresolved issues, or where we've got sins that we've failed to confess, or repent of, or deal with. And that might be sin towards my brother, because I'm being competitive, and I've fallen out with him, or it might be a secret sin and a private sin that nobody knows about. We need to have clean hearts and holy hands, we need to get rid of sin in our lives, whether that's sin towards others or whether that's some kind of secret sin. So men, if we're going to live up to the calling that we have received as men, then we need to be men who are holy, who take sin seriously and take the pursuit of holiness seriously. We need to be men who pray and lead in this area, men who are humble and committed to each other. And as we come to pray, let's make sure that we're living holy lives, that we are being consistent, that we're men of integrity, that what people see on the outside is who we really are uh, on the inside. So if you're a man this morning, you can write this too. If you're a lady, 
You can ignore these as well if you want. But on your outline this morning, write this down if you're a man. God wants me to come to church to pray. He wants me to stop competing, and he wants me to get rid of sin. Three things that God wants of us. He probably wants many more things, but from this passage, God wants us to come to church. He wants us to to pray, to to take a lead. He wants us not to be competitive, and he wants us to be living lives that are holy, to get rid of sin, to take holiness seriously. Now, having instructed the men, Paul now instructs the women. And in verse 9, Paul instructs women on what they should wear and how they behave. He says that women, firstly, he says, are to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, Paul's dealt with the tendencies that men have to drift towards one of two extremes, passivity or uh, kind of competitiveness and ego and so on. He's dealt with those tendencies, and now he challenges the tendency of women to have an unhealthy concern with their appearance. Paul says that women are to dress modestly. In other words, they're not to dress in ways that draw attention to themselves in a sexual way or in a way that shows off their wealth. These are the two two things that Paul highlights. They're not to dress in a way which attracts attention to themselves in an overtly sexual way or in a way which kind of highlights and flaunts their wealth. God created beauty and he created women to be attractive to men. There is nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with a lady looking attractive and dressing well. Not at all. In fact, the Greek behind the words, uh, the Greek words in verse 9, decency and propriety, literally means well-arranged and in harmonious agreement or arrangement. So Paul isn't saying to women that you have to dress in, bl- in black sacks or that you have to kind of have to do yourself down. That's not what he's saying at all. Actually, you could say he's telling them to make an effort, to, to, to look good, to, to, to dress well. But in doing so, dress modestly. Don't dress in a way that's unhelpful and un- that unhelpfully and unnecessarily draws attention to yourself in a sexual way. Now, women are who they are, and men, we just have to take responsibility for that, and that we don't look and lust after women, but women can't help the way they look, and actually, it's good that they look the way they look. God created beauty, but what they need to do, Paul says here, is not go that step further and unnecessarily and unhelpfully draw attention to themselves in a sexual way. Now, Paul actually talks about specifics. For instance, the prostitutes at the time would plait and weave their hair, and so he tells women not to do that for obvious reasons. You don't probably want to look like a prostitute, or particularly when you're in church. You don't want to be sending out that message, Paul is saying. It's not the plaiting of the hair that's an issue. Paul's not saying that. What he's saying is that in their culture at that time, if a woman plaited her hair, that is what the, the people around them would, would that, that's the message that they would receive because that was the kind of uh, dress code for that. And it sent a certain message. And Paul is saying, you don't want to look like that. You don't want to dress like that, particularly in church. And then he says, don't dress in ways that might show off your wealth. Don't flaunt your wealth unnecessarily. And I guess the equivalent for us today might be wearing certain fashion labels. You know, if we're, if we're kind of flaunting the fact that I can afford something, but you can't, that's not a loving thing to do. That is an unloving way to behave. And doing either of these things wouldn't be a loving thing to do. If a woman dresses in a way that draws attention to herself in a sexual way unnecessarily, it's not helpful to the men who are present. We're trying to love each other as brothers, as brothers and sisters and trying to, as women, make sure that the men are not unnecessarily stumbled. And equally, we want to make sure that those who are perhaps poorer than we are and don't have the wealth that we have are not uh, unnecessarily kind of made to feel lesser or, or you know, have less value because they can't afford the clothes that we have. 
And if a woman dresses in expensive clothes, that's not a helpful thing to those who can't afford those things. It's not a loving thing to do. So neither of those things are loving things to do. And when we come together, part of what we're trying to do is love one another and submit to one another. And so we don't want to do things, we don't want to behave in ways that would be unloving. And then he goes on in verse 10 to tell us what should stand out when we look at Christian women. Instead of their sexuality or their wealth, it's their good deeds, Paul says, that should make them beautiful. The way that they live for God, this is what should mark them out. So yes, a woman will look the way she does, and that's great, that's good, God's created beauty. But what should shine out, what should stand out even more than the way a woman looks, is the fact that they are living for God, that they love Jesus. And I wonder this morning as a lady, for those of you here who are women, is that what people think of when they know you? When they think of you, do they think of you and say, yeah, that person just loves Jesus. Their love for Jesus shines through, and I can see that in them in the way they behave, in the way that they live. I guess the challenge for all Christian women is this. Is my godly lifestyle what stands out as people think about me Or is it what I wear and how I dress? It's not wrong to be known for for what we wear and what we dress, as long as that's in in an appropriate context. Is it my godly lifestyle that stands out? Is that what I'm really known for this morning? So if you're a woman, you can write this down as a man as well, but I'd encourage you this morning to write this down on your outline. God wants me to be attractive because of my godly lifestyle. That is what God wants me to be known for if I'm a lady this morning, to be attractive because of my godly lifestyle doesn't mean I'm unattractive in other ways, but that is not the highlight. That is not the thing I should be focusing on. It's my godly lifestyle. Beauty is good. God created beauty. It's not wrong to look good or to dress well. But what a Christian woman should want to be known for is not for her looks, but for her godliness. Proverbs 31 verse 30 says this, Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And guys, if we're looking for a wife, those of you who are young, who are single, who are not yet married, that is the kind of woman you want to look for, a woman who fears the Lord. A woman who fears the Lord. That is the kind of wife that we want. That is the kind of wife to to cherish, to look for. So if you're young this morning, and you're thinking, what kind of a, uh, a wife, make sure firstly she loves Jesus. And make sure she loves him with a passion. And that that love for Jesus is what stands out and marks her out. But let me get to the difficult bit. In verses 11 and 12, Paul says this, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. Now, I guess that one of the most controversial, divisive, and difficult issues in local church life, particularly in the West anyway, is the question of the role of men and women. UK culture has changed beyond recognition. If this sermon was being preached 100 years ago, almost nobody would have batted an eyelid. But our culture and our society has changed beyond recognition. It's changed in the last 10 years beyond recognition, and certainly in the last 100 years ago, especially with regard to the role and the function of men and women in society. And many people would now argue that because the times have changed and our culture has changed, that the Bible, and therefore the church, is out of date or it's sexist. Or people would say that we need to revise our understanding of what the Bible says and that the church and the Bible need to adapt and we need to change to reflect the times. Or that even if the Bible does teach that the role of men and women is different, it really isn't that big a deal and is therefore not really that important and doesn't really matter. But is that true? 
The Bible actually has quite a bit to say about the role of men and women, and it gives some very clear direction on this issue. I, I don't think it's as ambiguous as some people would like to make it out. And, you know, it, it's vital that whatever position we personally take on the role of men and women uh, in families and in the life of the church is a biblical one. That is all that really matters. The position that we take is the position that the Bible takes. And that we don't take a position that's based on what our culture says, because culture changes continuously. Culture devours itself. and Our culture will not look like it does today in 20 years' time. And culture's continuously changing. The Word of God continues and stays the same. But culture continuously changes. So we don't base our views upon what culture says. And we don't base it upon our personal preferences. There's personal things we might like, we might prefer the Bible to say different things to what it does in a whole load of ways. And personally, if I was writing the Bible, it wouldn't look like it does. But thank God I didn't write the Bible, because we'd all be in a mess. God wrote the Bible, and so we have to submit to the Bible. And it shouldn't be based on our own experiences. You may have experienced things in church life, and you thought, well, that was good, I enjoyed that. But our experiences are not the guide that we should be following. It's the Bible. It's vital that we take our position on a biblical position, our our upbringing, our experiences, the people who've influenced us, the culture, the media around us, all of those things influence us as we come to read the Bible. And the challenge for us, and it's really, really difficult to do this, but the challenge is to try and put those things to one side as much as is possible. And it's almost impossible to do this because we all approach the Bible through a set of cultural lenses. But to try and, and, and recognize those and to put them aside as, pos- as much as possible and so submit to the Bible. Instead of coming with my set of pre-conceived kind of, uh, cultural ideas and preferences and likes and, and imposing them on the Bible. And so uh, as I look at the Bible through those lenses, I, I, I change the Bible to say what I'd like it to say. Instead of that, I come under the Bible and I submit to the Word of God. This is eternal. My culture is not. I'm not. And so I'm going to submit to what this says rather than trying to get it to submit to what I want it to say. It's not enough to say, I think or I feel We need to be able to clearly demonstrate from the Bible why we hold to a particular viewpoint. And it may be this morning that at at the end of what I say, you disagree with me. That's, That's fine, but make sure that that disagreement is thoroughly based on Scripture, not on feelings, preferences, experiences, and so on. So what does Paul say in this verse? Well, remember that these instructions are about what should happen in church meetings. That's what he's talking about, church meetings. Paul is talking about teaching and learning. He's talking about he's talking about church meetings where teaching is taking place just like it is now. Firstly, he says a woman should learn. And that was a really positive statement, coming as, as lots of the Christians were from a Jewish background where that didn't happen, generally, Paul is saying women should learn. But then he says that when they're learning by being taught, women should do so in quietness and in full submission. So what does he mean by that? Well, the Greek word behind full submission means to show yourself subject to those who are doing the teaching. To show yourself subject to those who are doing the teaching. So Paul is saying that women should submit to the teaching and to the one who is giving the teaching. But then we need to ask the question, so who is doing the teaching? Well, it's apparent from the following verse where it prohibits men, prohibits women from teaching men that it must be a man who's doing the teaching. That's what Paul is assuming here. But what sort of man? Well, as we look through the New Testament, what we discover is that it should be the elders of a local church uh, or those approved by the elders who do the teaching in a local church. 
And we also see that the elders are those who occupy that position of authority. Next week, we're going to look at the qualifications of elders. Uh, and as we'll see, that this all flows one into the other. And we're going to see uh, some of the roles of elders. And what we see here is that the elders are those who do the teaching, and they're the ones who hold the position of authority. And generally, it will be the elders that would teach. And Paul says just a few verses later in the next chapter, as, we, as I mentioned, about the qualifications for elders, among which are that they must be able to teach. So it's assumed that the majority of the teaching taking place in a church family, in a church setting, will be done by church elders. And then he says in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, which again we'll look at later in the year, that one or more of the elders of a local church may work full-time preaching and teaching. And that's the role that I have here at Regent. So the responsibility of teaching, of defending the truth, of being in authority in the New Testament church was in the hands of the elders. And the New Testament teaches that elders should be male. So in the majority of cases when Paul says that women are to learn in quietness and submission, it would be the church elders that actually would be giving the teaching. Now, Paul is not instructing women to demonstrate unquestioning obedience to any man and certainly not to all men. In church, What he's talking about here and what he's teaching us here is that in church gatherings, the women should submit to God's order. And God's order is what we call headship. And I'll come back to the concept of headship later. But authority in the local church is in the hands of male elders. That's what we find as we go through the New Testament. And the teaching given in a church should be by the elders or men that the elders are given the authority to teach. But why can't a woman teach a man or have authority over a man in a church. Well, notice that Paul doesn't say that a woman can't teach. What he actually says is that he doesn't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, which is vastly different. Paul, for instance, commends uh, Timothy's grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice for teaching him from the Bible when he was a child. And we see that in 2 Timothy, the the second letter he writes. And in his letter to Titus, just a little bit further on in the New Testament, Paul tells him that the, the older women are to train the younger women. That's a role that ladies should have in church, to be proactively seeking out the younger women and training them and teaching them from the Word of God. So quite clearly, the Bible doesn't say that women can't teach. What it says is that women must not teach men in this verse. And that doesn't mean that they can't pray or prophesy in church meetings. In 1 Corinthians 11, we see that it was expected that women would be at the very least praying and prophesying. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 5. And we're not talking about leading a service or sharing verses of scripture as Lucy's done this morning. What we're specifically talking about here, Paul says, he doesn't permit a woman to teach men or for a woman to have authority over a man. And of course, the people who were given that role of authority in a local church were the elders, and the elders to be men, according to the Bible. A woman can't be an elder, and one of the reasons for that is because the Bible doesn't permit a woman to have authority over a man. And intrinsic to the role of eldership is authority. It's a kind of circular argument. So why can't a woman teach a man or have authority over a man? Well, the first reason is found in verse 13, where Paul says this, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So God has established a created order. It was established right at the creation of mankind. And it's reinforced right throughout the Bible. And Paul is saying that that creation order is still in effect. It hasn't stopped. It hasn't ceased. It's still running. It still stands. God didn't create Eve first, he created Adam first, and he did that deliberately to establish his order and structure for humanity. He created them equal, men and women are totally equal, but they are different. And any time we try to remove the God-given 
the God-given differences that men and women have, what we're really doing is trying to undermine and attack the plan and design of God. We are not the same. We are different, and we should celebrate those differences. God created us differently. Men and women are not the same. We are different, and God has created us differently. Any time society, which we see it doing all the time, trying to undermine and, and narrow down those differences, is actually an undermining of God's created order. Of that, that men and women are different. They are equal, but have different roles. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. If you look at your outlines, or up on the screen, you can see this God-given structure from 1 Corinthians 11. It's what we call headship. We have God, then we have Christ, then we have man, we have woman. This, this theme, this concept of headship runs right the way throughout the Bible from creation, and Paul reinforces it here in 1 Corinthians 11 and here in 1 Timothy 2. Headship. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. Now, does that mean then that Jesus is less important than God the Father? No, of course it doesn't. Jesus elsewhere says that he and the Father are one. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They're in complete unity. And between the members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, there has always been an eternal equality in importance, personhood, and deity. However, it's also true that there's always been an eternal difference in the roles between, uh, within the Trinity. All three members of the Trinity are equal, yet the Father has a greater authority. His is a role of leadership, and that's a role that the other members don't have. And just as God the Father has authority over God the Son, so a husband, according to the New Testament, has, uh, is given a role within the family that gives him authority over his wife. And a male elder is given a role within the church that gives him authority over the women in the church within the context of the business of that church. So God the Father and God the Son remain totally equal, yet they have different roles, very different roles. And men and women are completely equal, yet have very different roles. So men and women have equal worth, equal value to God, and therefore should have to us. And we should really work hard on making sure that we never try and hide behind the scriptures as an excuse for uh, feminism on the one hand or chauvinism on the other hand. We need to make sure that we both value uh, male and female uh, uh, equally and give uh, equal worth and value. They are equal and value to God. But men and women do have different roles and functions in life, in the family and in the church. And that does not mean that women are inferior to men in any way, in just the same way that Jesus is not inferior to the Father. It's just that within God's order, they have different roles. And we can see that this isn't something that can be changed with culture or time, because Paul refers right back to creation to make his point. Paul says, this is why, and he goes back to creation. He says, this is why, and he says, God created Adam first. And if we say that women should no longer have men as their head, then we also have to, if we're going to follow that argument through, we have to say, therefore, that, that God is no longer the head of Christ. And that's obviously not the case. But that is the logic of the argument if we say that men are not in, in a headship sense over women. So men and women are equal, but have different roles. Write that on your outline. Men and women are totally equal, but they have different roles. This is not about importance. It's not about priority. It is about roles uh, within the church and within the family. We are not the same physically, and our roles are also not the same within the family and within the church. We have God, we have Christ, we have then man and then woman, and God's order and God's structure for both the family and for the church. And then Paul gives a second reason why women are not allowed to teach or have authority over men. Look at verses 13. And 14 again. Paul says, For Adam was formed first, 
than Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So when Eve did what she did back in the Garden of Eden, she rejected that God-given order of headship. That's what she was doing. She was saying no to that. She was rejecting it. Actually, the Greek word for sinner in this verse means to overstep the mark. Eve was basically proclaiming her independence from Adam. God had created her to be uh, under Adam's care and leadership, but she said, no, I'm not going to live that way. I'm uh, going to lead. I'm going to take charge. And that was Eve proclaiming her independence instead of submitting to him as, a, a, as her husband in the way that God intended her to do and wanted her to do. So Paul is instructing women in the church not to do the same thing that Eve did. Don't try to exercise authority over men, whether that's your husband or whether that's the church elders, and don't try to teach men. That goes against God's created order. It goes against the doctrine of headship. God, Christ, man, woman. Don't do what Eve did is what Paul is instructing women. And it's not just Paul, of course. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to us. This is God's word. Now, lastly, we come to verse 15 where Paul says, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, what on earth does this verse mean? Well, does it mean that women only can be saved, uh, be forgiven, have eternal life, have a relationship with God if they give birth to children? Well, obviously not, uh, because the Bible teaches that we're saved by God's grace through putting our faith in Jesus, not by works, not not by what we do, even not by having babies. Does it mean that women will be saved from physical problems when they go through childbearing? Well, I had to sit and watch as Claire, who is a Christian, gave birth to our two children, and judging by the amount of gas and air consumed, she clearly wasn't exempted from suffering because she was a Christian as she gave birth. So it can't mean those things. So what does Paul mean? Well, the verse literally, and and most of your Bible translations will have this as a footnote, the Greek literally is not women will be saved, but she will be saved. The verse is literally, she will be saved. And I think this refers back to Eve, because that's the context. He's talking about Eve, and he says, but she will be saved. Eve sinned. Eve rejected God's order of headship, but her salvation came through giving birth to a son, from whom Jesus was eventually physically descended. Her salvation didn't come through Seth, the one whom Jesus was descended from, but it came through his offspring eventually being the person of Jesus. When Eve sinned, God cursed Satan, who had appeared in the form of a snake, and he said these words, and it's the first prophecy of Jesus coming. It's right back in Genesis 3.15. And he says this, and this is God speaking to Satan, who's there in the form of a snake, and he says, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He will crush your head. And, And this is the first prophecy about Jesus coming. God is using this imagery of a man stamping on the head of a snake to destroy it, but in the process being bitten by the snake and being bruised by the snake. In other words, the offspring of Eve eventually, physically, was Jesus. Jesus was literally physically descended from Eve. And when Jesus, the physical offspring, descendant of Eve, died on the cross, he he crushed Satan. But in doing so, Satan struck Jesus and it cost Jesus his life. So Eve was able to be saved through what Jesus would eventually do on the cross. I don't know if Eve was saved, but, if, but she was able to be saved through what Jesus did on the cross. And all women today can be saved, as can all men, through today, through what Jesus did on the cross. Eve would have looked forward, we look back. And the proof of that salvation, the proof of whether or not a lady has been saved by trusting in Jesus is when a woman's life is changed and is then marked out by faith and love and holiness and propriety or modesty. 
Paul switches from she, referring to Eve, to they, referring to Christian women. He says, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So if a woman is truly trusted in Jesus, then the evidence of that will be a life of faith and love and holiness and propriety or, or, or modesty. They will continue to look like that. And if they don't, then it means they probably are not really true believers. They will continue in their salvation. They will continue to live out and demonstrate the fruit of the fact that they are now followers of Jesus. And one of the ways a woman demonstrates that these kind of attributes, according to this passage, is, of course, by being known for a godly life rather than as someone who flaunts their looks or their clothing or whatever. And that's one of the, the proofs, according to Paul here, as, as I understand it, that he's saying uh, Eve was saved or, or could be saved through what Jesus would eventually do. And all women give proof of that salvation in their own life if they're, if they're, trusted, if they're followers of Jesus by the way they continue to live, by these Christly, these godly uh, attributes that Paul is looking for women to exhibit and demonstrate. Now, I realize that this, this passage is difficult. It doesn't, it's, it's kind of uh, a little bit at odds with our 21st century Western culture. And I've said a lot of things this morning. I've not said my, I've just preached the word of God. And it may be at, view, maybe at odds with your own views. Maybe this may be completely new to you. you may, it may not sit right with you. Uh, you may disagree with me. All of that's fine. What I would say is this, and I would always stress this. If you have a different viewpoint, it's not acceptable in, in biblical terms to say, well, I just feel this or I just feel that. There's a lot of feelings going on in today's life. We need to think and we need to make sure that our, our views are firmly based on Scripture. It's not enough to say, well, I've, I've experienced this. We need to know what the Scripture says. So I'm more than happy to discuss this with anybody afterwards, but let's have a discussion based on Scripture, not on feelings or experiences. Let's make sure that whatever views we hold are based on what the Bible teaches. More than happy to engage in any discussions and, and, and chat with you uh, through that. But, but let Let's, let's do that around the Word of God. I, I realize that some of this might be different, might be new, might be at odds, might, be, uh, might struggle uh, uh, for some of us. And if anything I've said this morning has been offensive or has, been, uh, has come across in a kind of chauvinistic way, that is not my intention at all. And if, if that's the case, then forgive me. But I'm more than happy to engage with anybody afterwards or, or, in, or in coming days. If you'd like to know more about this or if you want to chat a bit further depth, what does this mean, what does that mean? And I will do my best to try and uh, help us through that process. So please do come and chat with me uh, afterwards if you want to. I'm more than happy to do that. Whether we're men or women, uh, this passage says some things that are, are challenging. Actually, often in church life, we kind of have this idea that, you know, it's a tough gig for the women. I think, actually, it's a tougher gig to be a man. The, the, the standards that God sets for men are really high, and we continuously, passively fail to be those kind of godly men. Uh, and so if you're feeling a little bit exposed as a lady this morning, it's actually us guys who should be feeling more challenged in many ways. This is particularly challenging for all of us. These verses teach things which are uh, perhaps different to what we're uh, so often experiencing or our default is. So what I want us to do now is just take a moment to pause and reflect on what this passage is, is saying this morning. And if God is speaking to you this morning about any aspect of this passage in terms of your own conduct, your own behavior as a man, as a woman, within your marriage, uh, with anything that we've looked at this morning, then just use this time now just to come before God and just hear what God is saying to you. Uh, that, that may not be the case, and that's fine, but as we come, let's just bow our heads, close our eyes, just have a moment or two of, of silent reflection. 
just to allow the Holy Spirit just to confirm or to uh, encourage or to lead us. Uh, if, if there's things, if there's steps that we need to take, if there's changes we need to make, that this might be a moment now when we can uh, in, engage with God as we just come before him. So let's just have a few moments uh, of quiet. Then I'm going to pray, and then Lucy and the band are going to come and lead us in a final song. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that your word is full of things which don't always sit easy with us, which are sometimes strange to us, which are sometimes at odds with our world around us, perhaps nearly always at odds with our culture and our world around us. We pray that you'd help us, Father, to submit to your word. Uh, We pray that you'd help us to allow your word to speak into every area of our lives, that we might live our lives in a way that glorifies and honors you. Help us to be men and women who are godly, Christ-like men and women that we might pursue Jesus, that we might pursue this godly calling to live as shining stars, as examples uh, in this universe. Lord, help us to be those kind of people. Help us to be those kind of men and women, we pray. Uh, Help us to be humble and gracious with one another. Help us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, we pray. So Lord, we thank you. We pray you would bless us now as we just continue in worship and as we sing. Um, Father, help us to... Uh, just to express ourselves to you, we pray. Be with us, um, we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen.